welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikani. And, and we're, we're your hosts. My name is Ntando Tsukwana from Wits University. I'm a fourth year student studying um, an honours in journalism studies. And I think it's absurd that vice chancellors are getting much money. I mean, and I mean, in the wake of the FISMAS for movement, I think uh, they should, I don't know, like it's, it's just absurd that students are complaining that fees are high and that um, fees should fall, but at the same time, their own VCs are getting so much money. It's absurd. And I also think that um, some kind of like structure should be convened in order to regulate those salaries. They should be moderated and brought down because it's it's not just the the vice chancellor; it's the whole council. They they are getting a huge sum, and I don't think that they should be getting that kind of money because the country is going through a lot. We we need that kind of money to be you know used for other important things. Today we think about how economic inequality takes shape in universities. Specifically, we think about how corporate values are reflected in university structures. And we explore the huge differential between top and bottom earners in higher education institutions. We reflect on the practice of paying extremely high salaries to university executive managers and explore ways of critiquing the inequality that that produces. Our guest is Professor Rasagan Maharaj, who is the founding chief director of the Institute for Economic Research on Innovation, which is based in the Faculty of Economics and Finance at Chwane University of Technology. Prof. Maharaj has a doctorate from the School of Economics and Management of Lund University in Sweden. He's also an alumnus of the University of KwaZulu-Natal and Harvard Business School. He's worked in and presented his research in over 30 countries, He's been a visiting professor and researcher in Brazil, Cuba, Kenya, India, and Sweden, also holding concurrent faculty appointments at the Sustainability Institute and the Center for Research on Evaluation, Science, and Technology of Stellenbosch University. He holds appointments to the governing boards of public and private enterprises and is ministerial representative to the Council of Rhodes University. He's a member of the steering group of the South Africa Forum for International Solidarity, where he convenes the working group on foreign policy. He's also the interim coordinator of the campaign to advance a global citizens movement for a great transition. His research focuses on the political economy, innovation systems and public policies, in the context of the global knowledge commons, economic development, social cohesion, and democratic governance. He's published widely and also sits on the editorial boards of scientific journals. Good morning and a warm welcome to Professor Rasagan Maharaj, who is joining us on today's show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. You have a very particular 
understanding and definition of innovation that you work with. So perhaps you could tell us more mm-hmm. about what innovation means in your research and how that links to our to your understanding of, of the university. I think what's quite important is the definition of innovation that we utilize in, in our research activities is framed around the notion of creative destruction. By this, what we imply is the ways in which we ourselves as humanity develop new ways of not only understanding the world, but how we insert ourselves into that world itself. The creative destruction aspect speaks to specifically generating new ways maybe improved or better ways of doing things, while at the same time removing hitherto best practices or the way in which we conducted ourselves. So because of that, our approach, which then seeks to better understand the political economy, is more framed as a critique of the way in which society is structured and organized. I want to paraphrase uh, work done by Gramsci and Basically, a point that he raises is that schools, colleges, university systems form part of civil, civil society uh, to the extent that they, are, they have a relationship with the state. And because of that, they are heavily influenced by the political hegemony of the ruling class within which that state finds itself. So on the one hand, then, the object, the work that they perform is in reproducing that hegemony. And if that hegemony is premised on inequalities, then the the university system reproduces is a hegemony of inequality. Quite important to note that in a, a very functional form. But on the other hand, and especially appropriate in the context of South Africa is the fact that the education system cannot be separated from historical struggles for justice. And in that context, specifically in South Africa, the struggles waged by people for access to education has then resulted in a particular configuration that we have today. I want to suggest that that configuration is is a transitory complex and it's yet to realize its full objective. So in other words, it's the victim of reform and maybe not as much transformation. Okay, so I'm hearing a a characterization here of education as something that is deeply linked to political and economic structures of a particular society. How would you explain the role then that universities should be playing in an economy or a political system like ours in the current moment? I think it's important to characterize our conjuncture. We are in the southernmost part of Africa inserted into a globalized world system of capitalism. In that, we are allocated a particular slot in an international division of labor as well. And they've a variety of forms in which people today discuss the same situation, including colonialism, imperialism, but they all refer to the same aspects, our subsidiary role in the world system itself. Normatively, the education and training systems in most non-advanced or immature capitalist economies is one of subsidiarity. In other words, how they contribute value towards the accumulation processes set from the main or dominant economies of that system. South Africa performs such a function as well. But at the same time, as I mentioned in Gramsci's definition, because of the dual character of higher education, we hold the potential of subverting 
such an accumulation process. In other words, generating ideas about how society could be structured in a different form mm -hmm. to deliver different results and through that create the knowledge necessary to manage a transition to a better society. So universities find themselves at this quite complex intersection between, I guess it's like a, a crossroads or a fork in the path where the one path could lead universities <laughs> down the road of innovating new ideas and new solutions to the problems that, and the other junction yeah. or pathway is one in which universities continue to play a kind of role of value accumulation in a kind of capitalist system. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in the latter that you mentioned, it's universally known as the kept university. In other words, its object is to further extend the tentacles of corporatization, of uh, privatization, of all the predatory practices that constitute the accumulation pathway of globalized capital. And what is your reading of how universities in general around the world or, or specifically in South Africa are responding to that challenge? Which path do you think we are going down at the moment? The one where we're contributing to solving the problems that face us mm -hmm. or, to, or, or the more kind of privatized capital-driven mm. vision of the university. Mm. I think as, as you raise it, Heather, in that form itself, it's important also to note that the universities cannot be delinked from the political economy of the country that we're speaking about. In other words, uh, because of the balance of force in the political economy, our role essentially, as it's presently shaped, is one of a corporatized entity. And that's where some of the empirics that uh, you've shared with me become so important. You know, um, if we look back at 1994, in 1994, the South African higher education system comprised approximately 36 public institutions and about 300 private institutions. They had a total enrollment of under half a million students, about 473,000. And all of this on the back of approximately just over 10,000 staff. Mm -hmm. If we fast forward to 2015 stroke 2016, what we're talking about now is 26 public universities. The number of private providers is dramatically reduced, but we have over a million students enrolled in the system. And when we look at the staff, the permanent academic staff on this, it's barely over 15,000. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if, if one sees us moving from half a million students to over a million, but at the same time only increasing the amount of staff, you know, barely by uh, mm -hmm. three or 4,000 in total, it gives you a sense of the amount of, in crude Marxian terms, the rate of exploitation mm. of all of the academic workers. In other words, the burden on all of us has increased mm. phenomenally, whereas our objectives remain the same. And that's why I think it's very important in, in also contrasting the information about the remuneration of staff into the occupational categories that such staff occupy within the university system. It becomes very important now, especially 2016-2017, to differentiate those involved in the academic project, core staff as in teaching, learning, 
research and community engagement versus the administrative apparatus, which remains largely supervisory and to, to, to a large extent mimics a corporate for-profit organization. I mean, if you look at your university or my university, let's look at the numbers of people that are employed by the university with an accounting stroke financial management background whose objective is to fulfill the reporting obligations for donor and state funding. What you'd see is a huge contingent of people. Why? Because they have to address the demands of those contributing the resources. If we look at the relationship between such large numbers of people employed in higher education, their relationship to learners who, uh, and students that are, that are enrolled in our systems is quite scant. There isn't a direct value addition that one can maybe notice in that. So if we're thinking about the corporatization of the university or, or the ways in which the university is being kind of organized and administered in, in quite a private sector manner, what we see is, yeah. as, as you've said, we see um, academic staff who are doing the actual value adding of the research and the teaching and then an inc- a growing number of administrative staff who have little to do with actually the core roles of the university in terms of research and teaching. Um, yet, Absolutely. is the argument that they're, they're kind of earning or taking a piece of the pie, if you like, that may be not necessarily in direct proportion to the value that they're adding? I, I think we could start to notice such a phenomena increasingly taking hold of the whole sector. I mean, I've not seen empirical studies that have gotten to the point of actually allocating such values. But at the same time, another maybe a point from economic history is useful. Mm-hmm. And that is the fact that the university system or higher education or the third variation, the post-school education and training system, mm-hmm. all three, no matter what you call it, exist in society on the basis of surpluses that are extracted at the, at the point of producing value. So we exist not directly in that uh, relationship, but basically our sector utilizes such surpluses that are extracted elsewhere. The question is whether the, uh, the utilization of that surplus results in a reactionary approach or a progressive approach. Yeah, so the reactionary uh, approach is basically uh, in a cookie-cutting fashion to shape all of us into the norm of what would be most pliant for uh, rendering capitalist accumulation possible. In other words, make sure ensuring patriarchy continues, other forms of hierarchies, extending inequalities, doing little to address unemployment, and through that, generally, not contributing to redressing poverty. Mm. A progressive approach, on the other hand, involves engaging in, and you'll excuse the use of the term, engaged scholarship. Scholarship whose objective is changing society. Mm. Uh, Scholarship which seeks to illuminate and provide pathways towards achieving a more equal uh, a more equitable, a more inclusive, resilient, stroke sustainable future for us all. Mm. You know, these these two, while in most institutions, in all the 26, I'm sure 
that we have a contestation between those seriously committed to progressive transformation mm. versus those reactionarily tied to a more conservative Mm. I mean, listening to what you're saying, to me, it seems blindingly obvious that the role of the university is to contribute in tangible ways to social progress and to social justice. I mean, I find it somewhat confusing that there is such a strong corporatist kind of ethic in so many of our universities. And I wonder if you have any insights or any thoughts about, you know, where that comes from. So you've spoken a bit about, you know, the power of global capitalism Mm-hmm. Um, and you've spoken briefly about the specific some of the specific characteristics of our history in South Africa, but you know, mm-hmm. how did we get to a point where universities are kind of organised and run in such a managerialist way, where we have mm-hmm. you know all of these extra layers of management who are earning Absolutely. kind of very yeah. high executive salaries, and where there is this kind of obsessive mm-hmm. focus on. Um, on the financial aspects and on kind of sustainability and on fundraising and on you know and and where have and how do we how do we get to where we are? Our path to uh, where we are today is not uh, dissimilar to the general path for the transition in South Africa itself. So, in other words, there's a strong correspondence between the types of choices and compromises achieved. Uh, in in our national transformation uh, and their application towards our sector. So, by contrast then, as opposed to a negotiated settlement between holders of people's power, and the reason I'm using that as a phrase as well, because it's relationship to people's education. And I would contrast that with what I would argue is a more neoliberal uh, version of reform undertaken utilizing tools such as new public management, which not only affects the public sector as in uh, departments of government or state agencies, but also the entire post-school education and training system as well. In other words, the types of managers that are being generated are not cadres advancing people's education for people's power, but rather managing Uh, state resources on the basis of new public management and through that, in other words, uh, incubating neoliberalism. Mm. So one of the reasons our universities have become kind of tools of neoliberalism is actually because our whole kind of transition sold out effectively on a kind of socialist organization of the economy in favor of a kind of neoliberal model, which I think has become increasingly clear. Something that's quite important in us realizing what was achieved uh, from the announcement of uh, the uh, decriminalization uh, of the national liberation movements in 1990 or following that 1994 was a political breakthrough. The consolidation that could have taken the form of popular mobilization for building on the political breakthrough with social and economic transformation may have been something that's now being extended too far. In other words, two and a half decades later, uh, we're almost a generation since that point. And we look at what are the results that we can show, especially in terms of social and uh, economic uh, transformation. It's far short of the huge raft of political changes. In other words, 
the concentration was on a political transformation. So in other words, the way I would caricature this is off the bat, we had a, a system of racial capitalism in South Africa that was installed late in the 19th century, consolidated in the 20, uh, 20th century, and whose crises ripped it apart in the 21st century. Mm. So its contradictions ripped it apart. Mm. Yeah. But what we did was we removed apartheid from racial capitalism. Mm. So what we end up with in 2017 is we have capitalism, which has a racialized form in South Africa. Mm. No, not racial racialized form. And how does that kind of trickle into or play out in the university sector, this this gross inequality and racialized capitalism as, as you've described it? How does that impact on the way our universities are structured and and administered and, and organized? Well, I think something that we need to bring closer to ourselves is how the enterprise, in other words, how our productive resources are deployed with the object of generating certain outcome, tend to reproduce the very negative situation we ourselves uh, are wanting to change. In other words, uh, we have uh, a system in South Africa, at least at the productive level, in a primary department around energy, uh, around agriculture, around mining, that remains of a particular uh, format. If we look across 25 years and look at the, the low level of change that's taken place there in the face of advancing knowledge, which should have helped improve the situation, we'd be quite worried by that. You know, we remain chained to burning low quality coal as opposed to exploring or inducing a, a stronger flavor of renewables, which we have in abundance. Mm. And we have scientific data from domestic institutions, so this isn't just coming at us from abroad. Institutions such as the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research has shown the possibilities available to us. In the face of that, we have certain decisions being made politically, which lock us into trajectories which are not helpful towards sustainability. So that's just in the primary department. If we look at secondary, which would be manufacturing and other forms of industry, we also notice very little has actually changed in the productive structure of South Africa's uh, economy. Mm. We look at what we exported in 1995, and if you look at 2017, we may have changed the ratio between some products, but very little change is evidence. So uh, when we face in front of us looming ecological catastrophes, mm. you know, while at the same time having most of the population remaining outside of economic participation, mm. whether that's a route we want to continue. Should we remain merely the franchisees of transnational real monopoly capital? Uh, or should we uh, be seeking ways in which we organize ourselves as alternatives? Mm. I would strongly urge the alternatives we seek are post-capitalist solutions. Mm. I wouldn't place maybe uh, a more defining character to it other than the object of higher education, the post-schooling education and training system, is to explore such alternatives mm. and ensure that we realize maybe progressive outcomes from it. And a lot of these ideas and these kinds of thinking and even the science that supports kind of new or post-capitalist ways of addressing 
issues like climate, um, issues like equality in the mm-hmm. manufacturing sector exist, right, and actually come out of universities. Um, what yeah, then are indeed. the obstacles to the, that innovative thinking and research actually becoming mainstreamed into policy making, decision making, and kind of forms of, of governance? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, 94 represents a democratic breakthrough. But I, I, I pursued that line to suggest that maybe the opportunity for higher levels of mobilization to ensure direct participation may have uh, eluded us, especially in the most recent past. Uh, in other words, ensuring that our institutions themselves have a larger participation of the society in their governance. By this I mean, if we look at the councils of which are the governing bodies of all the universities, to what extent is civil society actually represented by way of interest? If we fail to answer that in terms of increasing uh, progressive uh, and increasing progressive uh, orientation, then we should maybe uh, look at the class composition of who governs the institutions. If, if it's merely representatives of the upper end of the middle class and the aspirations associated with such a class orientation is not necessarily towards increasing democratization and because of that seeking to change the society. You would assume, based on enlightened self-interest, that it would be to pull up the ramparts and basically close off access to the ivory towers. Sometimes quite a gloomy um, outlook if when we kind of stop to really look at um, the inequalities that are shaping our societies and how they also play out in the kind of university system. It's not always a, a particularly encouraging picture. I think from the data that you shared with me, even though maybe up to two years ago, mm. if you look at the pay scales and the way in which we've got this, our own internal division of labor, we are doing little to redress that situation, mm. but actually fixing it, you know, mm. making it inviolable. Yeah. Uh, in other words, those on grade level 17 versus mm. grade level 1, that mm. should be a performance indicator based on a public discussion. Mm. The public discussion may say we should not have an inequality of more than 1 to 10. In other words, the highest earning should not have a ratio of more than 10 mm. to the lowest earning. Mm. Currently, we're talking about the, the, that being in 120 mm. plus territory, mm. not in uh, double digits. Maybe we should put some uh, figures to, to that conversation because if we're thinking about inequality in, in society and one of the, the kind of common examples that we'll roll out to show how unequal a society is, is comparing the kind of pay packages of the CEO of a big company and a cleaner, for example. But we're seeing very Mm. similar patterns emerge in universities where, according Mm. to the the last uh, 2012 report from Higher Education South Africa, which is now called University South Africa, vice Mm -hmm. chancellors in South Africa were earning anywhere between 1.7 to 3.2 million rand per year. Mm. President Mm -hmm. of South Africa gets 2.8 million rand a year. But I guess the the point Uh, there is, you know, why do they earn so much? You know, what is your reading of that huge discrepancy between the lowest earners at universities and the highest earners? Well, I think something that's quite important in recognizing, as you would have, uh, in my previous uh, answer, I mentioned something about the upper middle class. Mm. And part and parcel of this democratic breakthrough and what it's forced upon us is a consolidation of this 
class structure of South Africa and increasingly deracializing the middle class itself. Those offered the opportunity or those that volunteered themselves to become managers or leaders of things like universities are part of that aspirant class. Mm. And as such, their remuneration seeks to mimic that which they see in the private sector. Personally, I cannot understand how it is possible to justify such a huge differentiation, um, primarily because most of these institutions ostensibly suggest that they, they are opposed to increasing inequality. Mm. So how is it that their practice, which materially increases inequality in society, is tolerated? Yes. That doesn't make sense to me. So I think that's where, again, it remains absolutely critical that the wider society is party to discussions such as what the ratio between the highest earning versus the lowest earning. And in our peculiar case, as I mentioned, we are living off the surpluses extracted elsewhere in the labor process. Mm. As a consequence, we must be particularly self-regulating so that we do not then uh, continue to expand inequalities on the basis of such pay differentials. We've recognized and we've, we've, we've kind of exposed, although it's, it's I think, a, a matter of public information, that we have um, executive management at universities earning huge salaries, vice-chancellors, deputy vice-chancellors, heads of schools, all of these different layers of the kind of administration, mm -hmm. earning mm -hmm. huge salaries and thereby actually re reaffirming the inequality when mm -hmm. there is this kind of rhetoric, this public rhetoric about social justice. That, I find that quite disappointing. How should we respond? I think we, we need a serious conversation in South Africa about the political economy that we are party to. Mm. It wasn't part of negotiations uh, that allowed the country as a corporate entity to decide it favored a mixed economy. But a mixed economy which was orientated around capitalist values. It mm. wasn't a mixed economy towards socialized values. Mm. That's quite important. Mm. So our starting point then orientated us towards the type of capitalism and this particular variety that we are experiencing at the moment. So uh, that's one of the, the ways in which we can uh, begin this. Like I said, primarily it's increasing the direct participation of the South African society in the governance of all our state institutions. Yeah? Mm. Uh, and uh, through that, we should ensure at a very pragmatic level that discussions about uh, the cost versus the prices that we are willing to pay are borne in mind. Through this, as I mentioned, we need to ensure if you have 26 public institutions, all governed by the same constitution, mm. there should be parity at least across all 26 institutions. That's the inter-university situation. Because at present, university in councils can set their own pay scales and decide kind of rather um, arbitrarily how much they think they should be paying their vice chancellors. It's not governed by the state. One of the aspects mm. that would help all of us if exactly. there was parity between mm. all 26. Secondly, within the institution itself, we must recommit and actually reduce the differentiation between 
the lowest earning and the highest earning. Mm. And this needs to be practical. We need to ensure there are pathways out of low earning functions mm. so that those that are consigned to such entry points in, uh, in the university system can actually rise to the top. I mm. think currently that's not possible. Mm. You know, so even on its own uh, raison d'etre as a capitalist institution, it even fails to meet that, that mm. everyone has access. Mm. The third one then is actively engaging in transforming the society around the university. And this is increasingly taking on those research questions and developing uh, alternatives like Witz has, uh, I think, done quite well around the minimum wage as an example. But let's push further and ask, what about us having a discussion about what a maximum wage mm-hmm. in South Africa should be? But I, I just use it to sort of build on, you've taken a particular pathway mm-hmm. to uh, uh, arrive at an empirical evidence-based policy uh, proposal. Mm-hmm. That was the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. But the counterfactual to that would be, if we're going to consider minimums, we should also consider maximums. Mm. And in that, your point about the president versus the vice chancellors versus any other administrator comes into sharp contrast. Mm. Uh, state-owned corporations, all of the elements of the state should be managed in a, in a way in, which is consistent with the type of society that they are part of. The idea that the, such individuals have aspirations, and we constantly hear the refrain, as benchmarked against the private sector. Mm. Well, that being true, maybe we should encourage those who have such uh, intentions to, uh, to leave state employment and go and work for the mm. private sector, mm. where they could take that back and we would meet them on the factory floor. But inside the public institutions, we should be governed by norms and standards that help us build the better society Mm. we want to be part of. Playing devil's advocate here, I've heard the argument, and this is not one I necessarily agree with, but the argument is often made that the reason executives at universities get such incredibly high salaries is because without that kind of competitiveness, universities would not be able to recruit the best talent. What would your view on that argument? No, that's not true. It's a myth. And it's not only a myth, it's a self-perpetuating myth in the interest of those at the top of that picking order. Got to come to grips with this. The capabilities that are required for steering public institutions if governed under a democratic mandate, mm. which is inclusive and participative, does not determine that you need Nobel laureates mm. running these institutions. Mm. What you need is people who have the capacity and competence to. Now, in, the, in the, that instance itself, we have 55 million people in this country. We have an unemployment rate of 40%. Mm. We have a huge amount of talent that's excluded mm. from participation. On what basis do we then think the 26 individuals running the institutions are somehow supranational? Are these walking down the plains of the gods to give us? I don't understand that. I don't appreciate it. I think it's like hugely disingenuous. Mm. And disrespectful. Then suggests that um, a number of administrators have these special rare skills is... um, It's hard to swallow. Well, I think for us all, the litmus test would be we're nearly a generation since 1994. Yeah, Mm. In 2019, at least in anthropological terms, it will be a generation. Mm -hmm. When we look back, have any of these very highly paid 
individuals brought about the transformation that's created a better society for us? If the answer is no, then I don't think we should continue uh, paying such a huge differential. And also for those of us who work in universities and very often come up against the kind of impenetrable and implacable wall of bureaucracy, they don't always Mm. feel particularly efficient or the administration services that we are supposedly given by these highly paid individuals are not always particularly useful or efficient or supportive or collegiate or kind of human. I think we need to be a little guarded in how we put it across because we are employed within institutions like this. Yeah, but I would say generally, I come across a policing function more than an enabling function. That's the one part. The Mm -hmm. second part associated with it is in many instances, when we ask for specialized services, those Mm -hmm. specialized services are sought on an outsourced basis. Mm -hmm. They're not from the individuals that we expect the Mm -hmm. service to be rendered. So again, you know, I I have not seen that the salaries are justified on the basis of some special skill that's being added. What we need is good quality skills equitably distributed across the institutions. We need to recognize what the mean income of most South African households are and then reconcile ourselves inside the sector to the vast differential. And that vast differential includes the lowest paid at our institution being at a premium relative to those outside of our sector. I mean, that's the perversity. But again, the primary point you raised is absolutely relevant, which Mm -hmm. remains that we cannot perpetuate a system where such a huge amount of the surplus Mm -hmm. that we are utilizing is then uh, basically abrogated to a small cadre of individuals who then remove it from the system, excluding the possibility of widening uh, inclusion mm-hmm. of others into higher education. So what would be some practical steps forward? I mean, you've had um, a wealth of experience in, in researching political economy questions, questions of innovation, thinking about critically about the role that universities play in a society and development. What kind of possible routes forward might we have in terms of perhaps tangible things that people listening might be able to do to contribute to to changing the shape of the universities that they that they work in and live with? I want to hazard a guess that something quite important for all, for us all, no matter the disciplinary field or the subject area that people are most specialized in. And that is for us to look very carefully at the way in which science technology is influencing a labor is utilized in production. I mean, it's a phenomenal change that's taking place globally. Mm-hmm. The role of digitization, artificial intelligence and robotization. Mm-hmm. This has huge implications for the types of society we look in front of us. So in other words, unless we come to grips with those uh, changes in labor processes and it's impact on forces of production, the political economy will not hold the type of compromise. Why we end up with fundamental relation in capitalism is wages in exchange for labor. When labor no longer commands wages, what happens to the political economy we are living in? So that's a major task for us all to maybe pay more attention to. What do we see emergent around us that shows us other forms of economic organizing, social structuring, 
and and even political governance. Uh, a more direct issue, we need to remind ourselves, at least again, back to that Gramscian perspective, Mehdi, if you don't mind. Education has a vital role to play in preparing and enabling people to be more active, to be more cooperative. We citizens, through assuming our citizenship, for us to question the inequalities and injustices in society. Through that, we have the possibility of maybe um, appreciating the potentials of all uh, humanity. And through that, maybe we can actually encourage social, economic and political changes uh, and become the agency for such real transformation to take place. So to carry on working as we do with students on our research in, in kind of, and, and bit by bit chipping away, I guess, the, the bigger problems that face us through the educational work that we do. Yeah, I want to underline uh, work done by colleagues at a range of institutions, mm-hmm. but they seem to converge around a notion of socially engaged scholarship. Mm. So this is not scholarship for the object of scholarship. This is scholarship for the object of creating a better society. Mm. We need to remind ourselves that we can have that without becoming ideologically you know, uh, bereft of being critical. Socially engaged scholarship means working with the society that we've received with the object of transforming it. Back to the main points you had raised earlier, you know, we cannot therefore de-link the notion of salaries and wages, the way in which uh, the institutions operate. If they are merely producing fodder for the so-called labor market, mm. who see a future of unemployment in front of them, mm. then we need to question, is this an appropriate way of utilizing the surpluses of the backs of labor? If that, In that context itself, we need to ensure then that the institutions play a role which is much more embedded within processes of transformation. Mm. We have a larger role to universities, especially in the South African context where questions are very serious questions Mm. are being raised about the rest of the state, Mm. especially state-owned corporations, government departments and agencies Mm. who seem to maybe orientate themselves around narrow accumulation as opposed to changing the society. So accountability, Mm. greater accountability is required from universities And they need to, I think, somehow keep in mind that they are public institutions that are ultimately accountable to the collective and to all citizens. Absolutely. And to build increasingly cooperation and solidarity Mm. as ways in which we engage with each other, as opposed to constantly telling us that we need to compete for the few scraps that fall off the capitalist table. Absolutely, because that ethic of competition is kind of deeply, deeply ingrained in the kind of managerialist approach to running universities and that's why I kind of tried to slip that in at the moment Mm. and that's because again by the practice you look at it people individually institutions start measuring themselves against league tables and to see how high they uh, are on those tables yeah Mm. so time Shanghai no matter what you call the index but if we were to look at it from the bottom up we would then ask the question, how appropriate and relevant is the institution to the locality and the national questions that require the input? If these institutions have little to offer us, then again, I I would seriously uh, suggest that as society, we should take a view on whether they need to be continued or they need to be creatively destroyed. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's a one to end on. 
I'm Patricia Aruo. I'm an honor student at Invits Journalism and Media. I think when you take into account how much other staff at these universities get paid, particularly public institutions, it just doesn't make sense that there's such a big pay disparity that um, vice chancellors should be paid millions while staff earn you know, 10,000 rand or 30,000 rand or whatever that is. And as universities um, increasingly complain of lack of funding and, you know, issues around funding when we've had feasible fall and they have been complaining about the cut down in government um, funding and all of that, it just doesn't make sense that vice-chancellors continue to earn as much as they do. On the other hand, I... I can't really comment much on how much I think they should be paid because I think it is a significant position to hold, run the day-to-day workers of a university. So I don't really know what goes into the decision to pay them that much. I'm not sure, but either way, I do not think there's any justification, especially right now. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. Jager Malko created our jingles.